series called What's So Amazing About Grace? And how many of you guys have been here since the first one? Oh, okay, maybe a few. The second one, you were here since the second one maybe? Okay, it's okay because we're going to do a review. Uh, so, we're going to continue this series. Um, but we speak about grace very often. We speak about it all the time. It's very common language for us to use the word grace. But do we really understand what the word grace means? And more importantly, do we truly believe in what that grace is? Do we truly take to heart what grace is? And do we truly deal with it uh, with a genuine, authentic heart? And more importantly for me, with this understanding of grace, do we take that and do we live it in our lives as powerfully as we say it in our words? Right? And so hopefully the goal by the end of the next time I do this uh, series is that you can have a better understanding of what the Bible says grace is. Uh, but not only what grace is, but what it could look like and what it shouldn't look like. And what, why we are, as Christians, more importantly, why we as Christians are the people that can reveal the grace that God initially showed to us. So for the first part of our series, we talked about grace, and we set the foundation of what grace is, right? We talked about this issue of our churches being filled with this ideal of ungrace. And we talked about the word grace being used so often in our society that we tend to misuse the word and the meaning of grace and we have become desensitized to it. Okay? Uh, and just, uh, especially in our churches, while we should be offering the world grace, instead we share them, or share with them and show them more of ungrace than anything. The world is searching for grace, but what do we have to offer? And the example that I used uh, that first week was about, uh, you can tell a lot about a dog's owner simply just by looking at the dog. Okay? And I challenged you during that first week to think about what does the world learn about God when they look at our church, right? When they look at the followers on this earth, what do they see about God? Are they seeing grace or are they seeing ungrace? And then during that week, we talked about the parable of the workers and the unfair uh, pay, right? In Matthew 20. And we talked about how grace is not measured in a day's wage, but rather it is something that is simply gifted to us. Okay? Grace is unmerited favor, an undeserved, unexpected gift from God. But on top of that, we, we dealt with how grace is so unfair, and it honestly doesn't make sense. If you look at the parable of the workers, like clearly it's just not fair. Okay? They worked all day, and then some of them worked very little, but received the same amount of pay. Right? And then finally, we ended up that week with the definition of grace. And that was, I'll show it on the screen. I really love this definition, you guys. Grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us more. And grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. Grace means that God already loves us as much as an infinite God can possibly love. And then I left you on a cliffhanger, right? If we know our problem is ungrace, the opposite of grace, how do we fix it? What is the solution? And then the last time we talked, okay, I talked about that solution, or one of the many solutions, and I think the remedy to our cure of ungrace, and that was forgiveness. Right? And we talked about how forgiveness was such an unnatural act 
It's something that we aren't necessarily wired to do as human beings. It makes us uncomfortable. It's not the first thing that comes to our mind. It's such an unnatural thing to do. And something that makes us uncomfortable, we may think, why in the world does God command us to forgive? Why would God ask us to do something so off, so different than what the way that we were wired? Right? Pretty much, and the straightforward logical answer that I kind of gave you is because that's exactly what God did for us. Right? Because God is a God who initially forgave us, we have the responsibility to reflect that image of God, to forgive others. Right? And that's why we should forgive. And then I talked about that parable of the unforgiving servant. Do you guys remember? Some of you guys? Okay. And we discover that forgiveness is a three-way process. Right? It's not just a two-way thing. We also discover that when we deny forgiveness to others, in effect, we are also determining them unworthy of God's forgiveness. And thus, so are we. Right? So essentially, what I left you guys with that week was divine forgiveness depends on whether or not we are willing to forgive others, right? Because God forgave us first, we have the responsibility to forgive others, right? We don't forgive others because we want to be good people or we want to look like great people. We forgive others because God forgave us first, right? God initiates and then we reciprocate, okay? I'll say it one more time. God initiates and we reciprocate. Then I gave you three reasons uh, why we can forgive, right? The first one, forgiveness can halt the cycle of blame and pain, breaking the unhealthy chain of ungrace. Forgiveness can loosen the stranglehold of guilt in the perpetrator. And then three, forgiveness is the most beautiful form of showing grace to others. And then I ended the week with a challenge, right? Not as an individual to change this world, but to slowly start practicing and learning about this culture of grace through forgiveness. So that when we go out into our communities, our immediate world, we can slowly break the chains of ungrace and build a new culture of grace and forgiveness. That was the review, right? Now we start the sermon, okay? So we continue, and you might be wondering, what else is there to know? Pastor Tim, you've told us already a whole bunch about grace. You told us the problem of grace. You told us about forgiveness, which is the solution or the remedy to ungrace. So what else is there to know? So I touched on the point that I'm going to be talking about, the two things I'm going to talk about today. We kind of talked about in the last one. Um, and if you remember, there was a quote that I shared with you by the philosopher Immanuel Kant. He argues that a person should only be forgiven if he really deserves it, right? And a lot of us in today's society would agree with that statement. We would say, of course, only if they deserve it should we forgive them. Now. Grace and forgiveness is a very unfair thing to do. It's really unfair. And we grow up in a society and culture that admires and respects those who earns their place in society. What do I mean by that? I mean things like when someone studies hard, right, in high school and becomes the valedictorian of their class, right? Or a professional athlete that gets a huge check, right? A huge contract. Or even stories of people who were once homeless, and then they end up becoming rich and successful. We look at those kind of people and we're like, wow, they deserve that. They earned that. Right? But very rarely does our society look and admire and respect people that simply win lotteries or people that get things that they don't really deserve. That one classmate in your class, right, in school, who gets a scholarship and you're just like, what the heck, that guy's rich. Like, that guy has so much money. Like, 
Why does he need a scholarship? I need the scholarship, right? Or someone that, you know, gets favors from the teacher because the teacher likes them more than they like you. And you think, why? That's not fair. We, we frown upon that. We get upset. We get angry. And we despise that. Because this is how we were wired as human beings. It's hard to break these chains in this unhealthy cycle. And today, I'm going to jump deeper into the issue of grace. And how it seems to be so unfair, yet it's so right. right? And there are things that we need to accept and understand in order for us to truly show grace to our community. There are two points. And the first point we're going to talk about is this. Grace is for all, even the awfuls. So, growing up an Adventist, right, what are some things that kind of distinguish us as Adventists? You guys know? I, 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 I can't hear. I'm deaf. <laughs> Sabbath, right? Obviously Sabbath. But what's another thing that we all do, like, that we have to do to survive? We eat, right? So, as an Adventist, uh, I grew up in a very conservative circle of Adventism. So, diet was very important. I remember when I was in high school, I had to do, uh, my mom was like, have you heard of the Daniel diet? And I was just like, eh, I don't know, like, I'll try it. And then I found out I was eating like rice and beans and vegetables and I couldn't eat any meat. Uh, I felt miserable. But Adventism, right, takes a huge emphasis on our diet, right? And so being an Adventist, uh, there are many foods that the Bible says that we shouldn't eat, right? In the Old Testament, you find the Levitical laws that talk about clean and unclean, right? Foods like, you know, pig, camel, eagles, lobsters, crab, like things like this, the Bible says that we shouldn't eat, right? So as I was growing up, many of my friends would always come and ask me, like, bro, let's go eat some samgyeopsal, you know, let's, let's go eat some pork belly. And I'd be like, no, nah, I don't eat that. And I'm like, what is wrong with this guy? Like, you're not going to eat something so delicious as samgyeopsal? Like, what is wrong with you? And people would be like, dude, Kim, you're from Alaska, so king crab, like, dude, why don't you eat that? And I'd be like, oh, no, I, I just, I'm allergic, right? That's like the Adventist excuse to not eat, right? Unclean meat. Oh, I'm allergic. If I eat it, then I'll get sick. It's actually funny because now if I do eat it, my body reacts. So I think, I don't know if it's an allergy or if it's just a mind game that I play with myself. But anyways, so... Um, Growing up, right, going to an Adventist school and then transferring to a public education system, the question of, dude, why don't you eat this? Why don't you eat that? Came up over and over again. This is me growing up in a conservative background. But if you come to think of it, you may think like, okay, so if it's in the Bible, right, and why do we as Adventists follow it? Like, why would it be in the Bible in the first place, right? What does God have against King Crab? Or what does God have against Porky the Pig, right? For one thing, okay, let me kind of educate you guys a little bit. Um, the Levitical laws of the Old Testament dealt a lot with this ideal of cleanliness, okay? Almost all the laws that you find in the Old Testament, a majority of them, deal with this ideal of cleanliness. There are definitely health benefits to following the Levitical laws. Not eating certain meats like pork remove the threat of the trick of worms, like these round worms that you find in your belly. I, I was going to show pictures, but I want to be able to eat afterwards, so we're not going to show pictures, right? The ban that God had against things like self, self, shellfish and oysters and mussels prevented viruses and sicknesses. Some of the laws were more directed against the customs that the Israelite pagan neighbors 
would have. Some, some of them were really odd. One of them was cooking a young goat in its mother's blood. Okay? This is some of the laws that you find in the Old Testament. That was because it was like some magical spell um, that people followed back in the biblical times. That's kind of weird, right? So we notice that God forbids the Israelites right, to practically not eat anything. If you look and there's like one thing that they all have in common, the one thing that they have in common is that they're all abnormal. Something that was different. The oddball animals, right? Since fish was supposed to have skins and fails, or fins and scales, shellfish and eels, they don't make the cut, right? Birds are supposed to fly, so we don't eat emus and ostriches, right? Land animals, they're supposed to walk on all four. So snakes, they didn't make the cut either. So sacrifices also followed a very strict rule, if you look in the Bibles. Only certain animals of a specific qualification were allowed to be sacrificed. So if you look at the theme of the Old Testament, we can say that God was almost in a way, he was almost like a perfectionist. There are specific rituals and laws that had to be followed. Certain ways things needed to be done. God that we read about in the Old Testament was a God that wanted perfection, cleanliness, Something holy, something to separate them from the world around them. God wanted the best. And there was definitely this ideal of no oddballs allowed. So this thing about clean and unclean, you think this is bad, right? If you look more, it's more than just animals and sacrifices. It even applied to people, right? And this is, this is kind of crazy. Leviticus 21, 17, 20 says this. It says, say to Aaron, for the generations to come, none of your descendants who has a defect may come near. Do I have the verse actually? I think I have the verse. If it loads. No, it's not there. Okay. So uh, verse 18 of Leviticus 21. No man who has any defect may come near. No man who is blind or lame, disfigured or deformed. No man with a crippled foot or hand or who is a hunchback or a dwarf, or who has an eye defect, or who has a festering or running sores or damaged testicles. Pretty much, you see clearly in the Old Testament, God is giving these laws, anyone that was damaged, anyone that had damaged bodies or damaged family lines failed to qualify. In the Old Testament, it was clear that there were no oddballs allowed. <laughs> women that were on their period, women who had to go through childbirth, people with skin diseases or running sores, anyone who had touched a dead corpse, right? Pretty much all these people were considered ceremonially unclean, So in today's world, can you imagine if this is the message that we as churches kind of taught? If we taught this message, and if this was implemented in our church today, there would literally be riots. Like if you were associated with the church, people would kill you, right? Activists would not be happy. Ranking of individuals based on their gender, race, and even their health clearly doesn't make sense to us in the 21st century, right? You know, Jewish men each day would begin their morning prayers by giving thanks to God by saying things like, Lord, thank you for making me not a Gentile. Thank you for not making me a slave. Thank you for not making me a woman that's on their period. This is kind of prayer that people would have in Judaism. But can you imagine if we had prayers like this in our church, right? If I was the one praying like that in church, then you guys would tell me to leave and I would have to find somewhere to go. We're going to look at a story in the book of Acts. 
Acts chapter 10, and we're going to um, read a few verses. Um, Acts chapter 10, verse 9 uh, to 23, and then we'll skip down. Uh, about noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Peter replied, surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheep was taken back to heaven. And while Peter was wandering about the meaning of the vision, the man sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped by the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the man, I am the one you are looking for. Why have you come? And the man replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. And then we'll skip to 34 and 35. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Okay? So, with everything that we've talked about, and putting things into context, what appears to be going on in this story that we just read? Peter has a vision, right? He's on the rooftop and he has a vision. He climbs up to the rooftop to pray, and he has these, like, hunger pains, right? How many of you guys feel like that? Like when you're sitting here at church and Pastor Tim is like talking and it's like, dude, lunch is like in 15 minutes and he's still talking and your stomach is like starting to growl and you're like grabbing anything you can to stick in your mouth so that, you know, your stomach doesn't make any noise. Do you guys do that? I do that all the time, right? Or when like, you know, we go to like the Korean side and you don't understand what they're saying and they're like praying a super long prayer at the end and you're just like, dude, like, you say like amen after every other word thinking that they'll end faster if you say amen say like amen 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 and then like they're still not done but you're like really hungry you want to go eat you guys know like that feeling is that just me okay so peter is experiencing these hunger pains right and while he's praying and then in the midst of that he falls he falls into this trance and then bam right this vision happens and the vision is extremely like this is like Oh my goodness, like, how in the world? Why, how could you do this? There's a large sheet that descends from heaven, and it has all the kind of unclean animals that you could ever think of, right? Something that is strictly forbidden. So now keeping what we've talked about in mind, okay, this is a very serious vision. It's a blanket of unclean animals, animals that are not supposed to be even dealt with. And it's coming down to Peter. If Peter had happened to touch the carcasses, even if this was a vision, right, the carcass or the body of any animal, insect, or whatever was in that blanket, he would certainly become ceremonially unclean, right? And he would have to be considered impure until the evening, and he wouldn't be able to visit the temple. And that was a big thing for these kind of people, right? Even if some lizard or something fell into like a clay pot of, of food, right? 
the rule was you had to throw away the whole meal, right? Let's just say you cook a delicious soup and a lizard falls in, right? Unclean animal falls into your soup. Not protein, you have to throw it out, right? It's no longer considered something you can eat. You throw it out, but not only do you throw out the soup, you have to destroy the, the pot, right? Isn't that crazy? That's wild, right? These animals, these creatures that cause so much hassle, all of these creatures are simply in a, in a blanket, coming from heaven down to Peter. And God commands them to do what? Get up, kill, and eat them, right? Breaking a commandment to murder and to eat these unclean meats that God said not to eat, right? Isn't that crazy? Peter then has to remind God of his own rules. And I think this is so cute that Peter does, right? Oh, maybe that's just me. He's like, mercy, Lord, no way. Are you kidding me? I'm never going to eat anything like that. I've never done that in my life. But then God says what? How does God reply? God's pretty cute too, right? He's like, Peter, right? Don't call anything impure that God has made clean. Okay? So this happens total how many times? Three times, right? Then Peter is shocked, right? He's shook. He's like confused and he's probably really bewildered about what just happened. He goes downstairs and he gets an even a bigger surprise because a group of unclean Gentile people want to join his crew and follow Jesus. One thing that I like to mention is that this passage isn't whether about we can, whether our food is clean or unclean. Because God says certain foods are unclean, they are unclean, and that doesn't change. What God is trying to imply through this vision and the story of Peter is that his experience with the vision is that the Gentile people are the not clean, the unclean people. And God loves the oddballs too. You see here, a revolution of grace is beginning here. And it was one that Peter could not comprehend. You see, Jesus had started this revolution of grace, but it wasn't easy for people to accept at the time. There's a reason why Jesus seemed to be so scandalous in his ministry. When word went around that Jesus could be this dude that they've been waiting for forever, this long-awaited Messiah, people were excited and they were hyped up. But at the same time, there was so much confusion. Do you know why? It's because this Jesus was so different than what they had been reading about. Pharisees at the time, and as we know, were crazy about following rules and regulations. That's what they were all about. They emphasized so much of what they could do and what they couldn't do. For example, to, they spelled out exact rules for staying clean. Staying clean was a very vital part of that culture and that society. For example, you weren't allowed to enter the house of a Gentile. Right? You couldn't eat with sinners, tax collectors. Work was prohibited on the Sabbath. You had to wash your hands seven times before eating. How many of you guys wash your hands seven times? How many of you guys even wash your hands before you eat? Right? That's ridiculous. The laws and the regulations that they held. But when people started seeing Jesus do everything that they were taught not to do. For example, Jesus interacting with Gentiles. Eating with the tax collectors. Working and healing on the Sabbath. They were so confused. These guys were mad confused looking at Jesus. And we see throughout Jesus' ministry, he deliberately goes into Gentile territory and he gets involved with the very people that the Pharisees are saying not to get involved with. He praised the Roman centurion for having more faith than anyone in Israel and volunteering to go and heal his servant. Right? He healed a half-breed Samaritan with leprosy and he had lengthy conversations with a Samaritan woman. Even his disciples knew that Jesus 
wasn't supposed to associate with Samaritans. This woman, rejected by Jews on account that she was a Samaritan, rejected by her neighbors because of her scandalous series of marriages, became the first missionary appointed by Jesus and the first person he openly revealed his identity as Messiah to. Jesus even gave the Great Commission to the disciples to go and take the gospel to the Gentiles in all of Judea and Samaria, Samaria, the unclean nations, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus started this revolution of grace by going to the people who were considered unclean. In essence, we see here Jesus simply changing the Old, the Old Testament principle of no all balls allowed to the principle of we're all odd balls, but God loves us anyhow. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, we see him turning the tables upside down, challenging the status quo of that time. He invited defectives, sinners, aliens, Gentiles, the unclean people of society to God's banquet table. Isaiah 59 verse 6 says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. The prophet Isaiah prophesied about this, that this great banquet includes how many people? All people. Not some, but all. But over the years up until Jesus' time, this prophecy had been distorted to the point that they believed it was only a banquet for their kind of people. The Jews who were clean and not defected. However, Jesus' ideal and understanding of this prophecy was a direct contrast to the understanding of that time. He went out and he invited all people. So throughout Jesus' ministry, we see through his interactions with people, we see that Jesus changed the category that the Jewish people had created of clean and unclean. He had changed it completely. In Luke 8, we find three different stories of three different interactions. The first in Luke 8, Jesus goes into a region populated mostly by Gentiles, and he heals a demon-possessed man. And then commissions that man to stay in the region of Decapolis, right? Decapolis, to be a missionary. Instead of following Jesus, he says, stay and be a missionary. Following that, we see Jesus touched by a woman that had a 12-year hemorrhage, a problem that had disqualified her from temple worship for years and put her in this unclean category. From there, Jesus goes to the house of a synagogue ruler whose daughter had died. Jesus, at this point, is already classified as an unclean person because of his interactions with the Gentile demonic-possessed man and the hemorrhaging woman. But then he goes and he enters the room and touches the body of a dead girl, which also disqualifies him for temple worship. You see, Levitical laws were very particular against contamination. Any kind of contact with Gentile, sick person, dead body, animal, whatever it is, mold, mildew, things like that even, would be considered a risk of contamination. And this is why, like lepers, you've heard of leper colonies, right? This is why they have these. Because leper colonies, they had to live outside the city. Anytime they wanted to go into the city, you know what they had to do? They had to raise their hand and tell people, I'm unclean, I'm unclean, so that people would make a path for them. That's how bad it was. That's the kind of culture and society that people living through at that time had to go through. But you see, Jesus had to reverse this process. He was reversing this process. Instead of Jesus becoming contaminated, he made the other person whole. The demon-possessed man did not pollute Jesus. He was healed. The hemorrhaging woman didn't shame Jesus and make him unclean. She went away whole 
and new. The dead girl did not contaminate Jesus. She was brought back to life. Because you see, in this culture, I don't want to stop working. In this culture and society, can we do the next slide? If the clean came into contact with the unclean, okay, the clean became unclean. But for Jesus, he turned the tables. When the clean came into contact with the unclean, the unclean became clean. Okay? Jesus didn't come to get rid of these Old, Old Testament laws. Don't get me wrong. Rather, Jesus came to fulfill these laws. God hallowed creation by separating the sacred from the profane, the clean from the unclean. Jesus did not come to cancel out this principle, but rather Jesus came to change the source. We can now be agents of God's holiness, for God is now within us. In the midst of this unclean world that we live in, we can strive to be a source of holiness. When we see the sick, when we see the poor or the needy, they are not hot spots of contamination, but rather they are potential reservoirs for God's mercy and grace. And that's our job as Christians, to go out and fill them with this mercy, with this forgiveness and this grace, not to avoid them in fear of contamination, just like Jesus did in his ministry, we can help make the unclean clean. Paul, who was once Saul, a man who was stubborn of change, he once said, a man who was not thankful to be a Gentile, Pharisee of the Pharisees kind of guy, ended up writing these words to the Galatian church. He writes in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ. Jesus' death and resurrection, his ministry, his life, it tore down walls. It leveled the playing field for all that were once separated by categories. Grace had found a way. So we're all oddballs, but God loves us anyhow. Amen? Second part that I want to share with you, and it will be relatively quick. The risk of grace. Risk has a grace. Our grace has a risk, right? A risk of being abused. So far, I've presented to you uh, grace very one-sidedly. Right? I've painted grace as this lovesick father who is willing and wanting to forgive. That grace is something that has the ability to break the chains that restrict us. And grace is merciful enough to rid of the differences that we have between us. Like I said before, grace is also very scandalous. Jesus Christ died for our sins. But that, does that include people like Hitler, Judas Iscariot? Does grace have any limits? In the Old Testament, we find both Moses and David, both who had committed murder. Yet God still showed his love and mercy on them. He loved them. Paul was a religious terrorist. He went around killing people. And yet God still poured out his love onto Paul. But with this, grace has the potential of being abused. Grace abuse, is what I like to call it, is a real thing. We know that God loves us. We know that God will always accept us like a lovesick father. And since we know that, should we commit sin willingly, knowingly commit sin? Do we continue going out doing wrong? If I sin, will God forgive me? If I knowingly commit sin, will God still forgive? Will he continue to show grace? There's a catch to grace that now I want to bring up. And maybe this will answer some of the questions or doubts in uh, this series uh, so far. C.S. Lewis once said, St. Augustine says, God gives where he finds empty hands. A man 
whose hands are full of parcels cannot receive a gift. So condition one, okay? Grace must be received. So pretty much grace is a free gift, right? And we must learn to accept it. C.S. Lewis continues the quote. He says, um, he's explaining the difference uh, or the confusion of condoning and forgiving or accepting and forgiving. To condone or to accept an evil is simply to ignore it, to treat it as if it were good. But forgiveness needs to be accepted as well as offered if it is to be complete. A man who admits no guilt can accept no forgiveness. Of course, God will always forgive us and show us grace. And I truly believe that. If you look at the Bible, it's very clear. I believe that he, that he will always be that lovesick father running out to take us back home. Forgiveness isn't God's problem. It's more of our problem. Because he has already showed us the forgiveness from the very start. What we have to go through to sin will only distance us from God. And in the very act of rebellion, when we choose to sin and do wrong, there's no guarantee that we will want to come back to the Father. We may ask about whether or not God will forgive us now, but the question really is, will we want God's forgiveness later if we continue to sin? Especially if that involves repentance. Now, there are two different types of people. It's not the guilty and the righteous, but rather it's the guilty people who acknowledge their wrongs and the guilty people who don't. And there's a perfect story that I want to share that kind of conveys these two types of people. And that's found in John chapter 8, uh, verses 2 to 11. And it says, oh, that's not right. Okay, at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. He sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a bias to accuse, for, for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and continued to write on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, Sir, no one. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declares. Go now and leave your life of sin. So here we have right, the Pharisees coming in to try and trick Jesus. And this is a pretty well set up trap, right? Moses' law specifies death by stoning for any kind of adultery. But Roman law forbids that Jews uh, carry out this type of execution. Okay? So you see the trap. right? Moses' law says stone her, but Roman law prohibits or forbids Jewish people to do this kind of thing. So the trap is, will Jesus obey Moses' law or Rome? Right? Or will he instead... Known for showing mercy to these kind of people, let her off the hook. Now all eyes are on Jesus at this point. So at this moment of tension, of unease, and of wonder, Jesus takes action. And it's an action that we wouldn't think of, really. He gets down and he starts writing at the ground. And this is the only time ever we find Jesus writing something down. 
And it's written in sand, so we don't even know what he wrote. But that's not the point. From our standpoint, as the audience, when we look at this story, when we look at this text, we see two different categories of actors in this scene. One, the guilty woman who was caught red-handed, cheating, and number two, the so-called righteous accusers. So Jesus speaks up, and he eliminates one of these categories by saying, if any of you is without sin, then you can throw the first stone, right? And then when they all started to leave, slowly but surely, Jesus stands up, and he sees that the woman is all by herself. Asking her if anyone had condemned her, she says, no. And I'm sure this woman was afraid. And she was probably being expected. She was expecting probably to be stoned. Because that was the law. But instead, Jesus shows her mercy instead. You see, Jesus changes these two categories, the righteous and the guilty, with sinners who admit and sinners who deny. The woman who was brought with charges of adultery, adultery helplessly and willingly admitted her guilt. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were the problem. They denied and they repressed guilt. The thing about grace is that an empty hand is needed to receive it. We need to be just like the woman in this story, trembling, humble, without excuse, our hands open to receive God's grace. You see, the catch to grace is this, is the openness to receive. And in Christian terms of this word, we call it repentance, because repentance is the doorway to grace. If we look back at the parable of the prodigal son, the repentance is the journey back home that leads to that joyful celebration. It opens the way to a future and restored relationship with God. God awakens the guilt inside of us for our own benefit. God doesn't want us want to crush us, but rather God wants to liberate us. God wants to heal us. And the only way we can have that healing and liberation is having a spirit like the woman who, despite being caught red-handed, defenseless and without excuse, right, she willingly opened and accepted the mercy that Jesus had to give to her. I tell people this a lot, but the first step and the first direction you need to go in solving a problem or an issue in life is learning how to first identify the problem. Because by acknowledging and knowing that there is a problem, we can fix it. If we don't know that we have a problem, then we continue going on living a life with that problem. So it's important and it's a challenge to come to God in repentance, to be willing to open our hands and to receive the grace that God truly wants to give. So two points. Number one, grace is for everyone, for all, even the oddballs. And we're all, all, we're all oddballs, but God loves us anyhow. And two, the risk of grace is grace abuse. And genuine repentance is the solution to this abuse. So I want to challenge you to continue to try showing grace to others, to continue this revolution of grace that Jesus once initiated by going out and accepting those that are different than us, the abnormal, the oddballs compared to us, to change our perception and understanding of the people that are different than us, not as people that can contaminate us, but rather as people that have potential to be filled with the grace of God.